0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about transcultural identity. And joining me to discuss this today is Dr. Christopher Porter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, going well, going well. So let's talk about transcultural identity. At the moment, there is a you know, big buzzy discussion about all lives matter versus black lives matter. I would say that it appears to me that there is a growing uh, appreciation of what black lives matter as a slogan means, as opposed to, I think maybe some of the initial animus uh, when that slogan started to be used after Ferguson, for example. Um, However, there is still this, I think, differentiation between the slogan and the movement and some people posture in this way they say I can you know I can affirm the black lives matter but I'm not on board with the movement but as we think about this you know, distinction between black lives matter and all lives matter, there still are some sort of obstinate reactions to black lives matter in terms of all lives matter. And I wonder if we could talk a bit more about transcultural identity today as a way forward, as a helpful lens for us to think about this issue of universalism versus particularism. And so Chris, would you give us a little bit of a kind of brief synopsis about what transcultural identity is?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess one of the interesting things for me watching on as an Australian being outside the American context is that a lot of the um the slogans such as black lives matter or all lives matter come to us here in Australia and and get repeated across the twitterverse or on Facebook and are completely abstracted from their context. So I think the last couple of days, you've had uh, Juneteenth, uh, whereas here in Australia, no one even knows what Juneteenth is. No one, no one has any significance about uh, the nineteenth of June, but everyone started to talk about Juneteenth as a thing. If
0: I could just break in, frankly, that's true of Americans as well. Okay. And, and it's sort of this rather telling example of how, you know, history is selective and in particular in, in America, how, you know, the fact that we don't know about Juneteenth, you know, broadly speaking, it's an indictment on our ability to see the big picture of race and race relations and these sorts of things.
1: For sure. And... I think that's one of the interesting areas of this is in that in that space of the all lives matter, Black Lives Matter uh, discourse. Like there is a, a significant to use I guess a theological framework a universalism of all lives matter. People want to assert that that it's not just one subcategory or one subgroup of society that has claim to, to to certain things, but uh, rather all uh, categories of society do. And one of the areas I think is, that's really interesting with this is in terms of what happens if people's identity doesn't neatly fit in one certain category. And realistically, most of our identities don't fit neatly. Uh, we we uh, change salience of identity uh, as the situation demands. Uh, so when I'm in the States in November uh, for SBL, you know, I'm more I feel more of my Canadian heritage than I do when mm. I'm in Australia. Um, I was born in Toronto. But one of the, uh, one of the interesting areas where this comes uh, really uh, sharply for a lot of people um, who are transracial or transcultural is, is in this space of uh, transcultural identity. Listeners uh, may think of the Rachel Dolezal debate from a little while ago where an ethnically white lady uh, claimed to be uh, black and uh, ignited this debate about what blackness is. Uh, and that, it, it just reminds me of this. Uh, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, where um, there is a collapsing of identity structure, such that uh, you can people want to affirm that they aren't being left out of the of the category. Uh, so transracialism in this case uh, came back to how much you identify with a certain culture. But the problem is that for, for many people, transracialism isn't just a a thing which is constructed, but a thing which is bestowed upon them. Uh, so in my case, I'm actually adopted. So I was adopted when I was a child. I'm half Chinese, but my uh, adoptive family is uh, white Australia. And one of the interesting things there that many transcultural adoptees or transracial adoptees feel is a sense of uh, ongoing dissonance when, when we talk about race and ethnicity where the cognitive ethnicity that we have as myself i feel fairly white a lot of the time i was brought up in a white family i do white things i don't do lots of asian things so lots of the things that the little cultural ticks that identify us as a certain culture certain deference for elders or a or practices of giving over credit cards or uh, cash with two hands and things like that that identify you as a, a specific Asian culture. I don't do any of those things. When I interact with people, and, and this is a lot of what identity is, is is how people categorize you and how you categorize yourself. I'm often categorized not as Asian, but as something else. But from my skin color, of course, and, and from my um, ethnic perception, people look at me and go, oh, you're Asian. And so there's there's this almost this gray zone where you're not Asian enough and you're not white enough, if you like, Um, Mm -hmm. or for for many, many other people who transculturally adopted in other contexts, you're not whichever ethnic heritage you have enough, or you're not white or generally it it tends to come back to being uh, white enough, Mm -hmm. mainly because the majority of adopters are white Anglo.
0: Yeah thanks for that summary of transcultural identity and personal account of transcultural identity as you as you relate for us. So as we think about how this applies to the you know all lives matter black lives matter sort of debate how does this issue of transcultural identity help us wrestle with that universalism versus particularism issue.
1: Yeah I think one the in the black lives matter all lives matter debate one of the Dangers or the challenges is to, to not be sucked into a, a universalistic flattening of of the of the engagement, um, as if as if there could be a some form of um, of the debate where people can affirm that their certain ethnic identity is is also um, is is just a, just as relevant, but without the the need for acknowledging any form of inherent. Bias in the system, or any sort of form of inherent systemic nature to to the to the race engagement. So I know here in in Australia we we don't have the same proportion of our population uh, who are racially uh, profiled in the same way. We we certainly have a significant minority in in our Aboriginal people who do see it quite a, a stark difference in. Uh, how they're treated by police how they're treated by society uh how they are incarcerated and deaths in incarceration but what one of the challenges there is that uh, there isn't the same the same perception of my of the minority report within within australia whereas i i think i see in the states that in in some degree the 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 nature of the race relations is such that it, while it is absolutely black lives matter that the there are other, several other cultural minorities which are also in that same category, so uh, Latinx or or Asian, Filipino, et cetera, the various other cultural minorities in, in America who often get the same treatment. And so some people will, will latch on this All Lives Matter and say, well, what about these other cultures? What about these other people who are receiving the same treatment? Uh, I saw this week in, in San Francisco, there was a, um, a Filipino man who uh, was abused and and filmed filmed that abuse uh, as he was daubing Black Lives Matter on his uh, on his balcony in chalk. And I've already seen in the last, you know, within a day or so, uh, people pointing to this and saying, "Surely this isn't Black Lives Matter. This guy's not black. Uh, he's he's Filipino. So therefore, all lives matter." And it's it's a, a reach for a universalistic ap- application from a. A very much a paternalistic particularist approach, and I think one of the one of the areas uh, where this really comes home in terms of transcultural identity comes down to how do we affirm both particularism and a, and a form of universalism at the same time. How do we how do we want to want to say that it's not say four separate movements of Black Lives Matter, uh, Latinx Lives Matter. Filipino lives matter, Aboriginal lives matter. Insert ethnic minority here, lives matter. We don't want to be so particularist that there is no, there is no sense of the whole. Uh, but we also don't want to be universalist and flattening out the cultural makeup such that it is uh, simply something that anyone can affirm as all lives matter, and therefore there is there removes any sense of systemic nature to the to the injustice, any sense of discrimination because this is simply becomes a Everyone in it, we're all in this together sort of debate. So, one of the one of the areas that I think that is really helpful to wrestle with is the dis, the dissonance or the the discomfort which comes from from people trying to navigate their identity throughout throughout our society. One of the the constant things for with interviews of transracial or transcultural people is that there is a, a sense of dissonance which comes when people are talking about their race and, and ethnic identity. Uh, so. There's this fascinating NPR podcast on um, which interviews a whole bunch of uh, transracial adoptees on their, their experience of, of being, of, of their identity experience of being adopted and, and thinking about race and identity. And the, the constant thing that comes up over and over again is this sense of dissonance when people look at who they are and who, who the, the adopter them are, but also who the cultural uh, the culture that they come from. And I think that that sort of dissonance is, while it's, it's extremely painful, can actually be quite healthy. And especially as people read the, uh, the experience of, of those who are in, in that space and we realize that actually the majority of us are in, in this space of, of navigating a universalist or particularist engagement. We just don't realize it a lot of the time. So some, some, of, the, some of the reflections are at, from, from this podcast. Someone, someone wrote, I spent the first 12 years of my life thinking I was a little white girl. And when I found out that I wasn't, it wasn't just a revelation. It was an identity crisis. And this is one of the areas I think actually is, is what's coming home to roost a lot in the race debates in both America and, and in Australia as well. Spe- perhaps I'll speak up the Australian context in that lots of people have spent their entire lives thinking that they are of a, like little Australian kids and that there isn't any form of, uh, we're the lucky country, there's no form of systemic racism or systemic engagement here. But then certain Black Lives Matter comes along and certain stats come out about actually the incarceration rates of Aboriginal people in Australia, and they realise that actually this identity that they have held for so long of Australia being not, not being racist or uh, not having slavery in Australia, which is what our Prime Minister decided he wanted to come up with the other day, And it's not just a a revelation; it becomes an identity crisis. And there, there's a sense in which a a lot of the all lives matter engagement, I think, it not not only is a attempt to diffuse the Black Lives Matter movement, but it's also attempt to wrestle with people's own identity and and the implied complicity with particularism, which has been trumped as universalist. This question on the dissonance that comes with um, with the universalism particularism conversation it, it reminds me and and not just because i've been doing some work in one corinthians uh, but it reminds me significantly of the new testament debates on universalism particularism and john i know you, you did your doctoral thesis on galatians did you do, do much work on galatians 3 and the nature of the the particularism universalism uh, debate there that now there is no longer Jew nor gentile slave nor free but you're all one in christ that's uh, a verse I see thrown around a lot when mm-hmm. people want to talk about all lives matter as opposed to Black Lives Matter.
0: Yeah, participation in Christ—that that, that dynamic—that I think is explicated there in Galatians three and elsewhere. That kind of you know you have put on Christ in baptism, and you're all you're all one. You're all sons of God. You're all you know children of Abraham. This kind of thing. I I think that that's a big Big part of of Galatians three is a, a big part of my my thesis. It you know covered some other um, dynamics of the letter uh, as well. And I I think in in Galatians three what you have is a you know a strong sense of unity. Of course, the unity in in Christ. You know this is a Jew Gentile issue. You know how do Jews and Gentiles relate to each other during these early days of the beginning of the Christian movement in which You know, things weren't fully understood in terms of, you know, uh, do Gentiles need to become Jewish, essentially? Uh, Do they need to be circumcised or not? And what we see in Galatians is this, you know, very specific argument about how these Gentiles who are accepting this, you know, Jewish movement, Jewish Messiah, these sorts of things don't need to be circumcised. And so you have, you know a very clear sense of particularity within the universalism of being united in Christ, right? This doesn't mean, though, that everyone's going to do the same things. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to get circumcised or isn't going to get circumcised. I mean, this is just one example. Circumcision is the hot button issue behind Galatians. Uh, And yet the argument isn't, hey, we're all done with circumcision, or we're all going to to be circumcised, you know, it's interesting how there is a particular sensitivity. It's very similar in some ways to what we see in First Corinthians 8 to 10, or what we see in Romans 14 to 15, where... Paul doesn't paint with a broad brush and say hey we're all going to you know observe or not observe the sabbath or we're all going to maintain certain dietary restrictions or not. In fact, the very fact that Paul has to write these sections in these letters demonstrates that he is navigating this this very, you know, tricky path of universalism and particularism where he is not Sort of saying we're going to be homogenous. We're all going to do the same things. And we're going to follow a certain set of social dynamics. But precisely because we're not, he provides certain you know guidelines for how we would live together in community, given our particularities.
1: Yeah, and I think that that nature of of, of how how we do debate around particularity and and difference and dissonance within this context of a universalist. Salvation narrative—I guess you could call it—in in Paul uh, is something that, that I, I see uh, strongly lacking in a lot of the time in how we do uh, this debate in our society and also in the church. The, the there tends to be this this sense in which there cannot um, in from some some quarters this debate must be universalized, uh, as in we can't say something specifically about a subset of the culture or a subset of the church, uh, but also. From other quarters, uh, this debate must be entirely particularized. Or it's it's just this this culture, or this this sort corner of society, or it's just this area. Those, those either those protesters over there, or those cultural that section of culture. And so, I think we need a lot more nuance in this in this debate around how the particularism and universalism works. Um, what, one of the areas that I've been, um, I've been doing a bit of work on recently is uh, 1 Corinthians 9. In there, we, we have not just an affirmation of the practice of circumcision or Sabbaths or, or observing various days and various holidays, but the Paul's own reflections that uh, his identity makeup seems to change depending on whether mm. or not he is with Jews or Gentiles. This seems to be an area where there is a, a form of particularism, which is actually um, strongly applied particularism but it's mm-hmm. serving a universalist uh, end. So 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul, Paul writes, so that I'm free to belong to no one. I've made myself a slave to all, to mi- win as many as possible. So to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, uh, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. I've become all things to all people, so as by all possible means, I might save some. And so we have this, this vision of a universalistic uh, or a universalist vision of, of salvation, uh, of engagement with, with the culture, but uh, in multiple different particularist frames. John, I'm wondering about your reflection on this, especially given Paul's seemingly harsh words to, to Peter about. Yeah, you know, where when the Jews come you stop eating with a Gentile.
0: Yeah. Well, my my initial thought on what you were just describing with the first Corinthians 9 aspect is, you know, this kind of reminds me of the IDI, which is that instrument for uh, discerning intercultural competency or intercultural empathy and intercultural intelligence is what's called adaptability. So, for example, a universalism that neglects Particularity would minimize difference, right? So if if all we want to say is we are one in Christ and we don't want to say anything about difference or particularities, you know, who are these various people, you know, and peoples that are one in Christ, right? If we don't want to say anything about that, that would be a form of minimizing. So it's good on the universal, but not on the particular, right? The way the IDI is structured is moving past minimizing is um, acceptance of difference to Adaptability, adapting to difference. And I think what Paul describes there is a great early Christian, you know, adaptive posture towards difference in particularity, right? Yeah, as it pertains to Peter, so referring to Galatians 2, the Antioch incident, where you know Peter is eating with Gentiles there in Antioch, but when some you know people from James, so referring to the Jerusalem church, show up, Peter withdraws and you know Paul stands up to him opposes him in Antioch and tells us that even Barnabas had gone away in this hypocrisy and you know I think what it reveals is that Peter kind of represents a trajectory at least when we look at the New Testament as a whole he kind of represents a trajectory of of somebody who is sort of beginning to get it and you know messing it up along the way and and I think that's that little snapshot there in in Galatians 2 is a moment of weakness, I think, in the light of his retrieval uh, from, from the table. Um, I don't believe that what, what he was eating was the issue, right? I think it's who he was eating with. It was an issue of community, ultimately. Um, and I think there were some scruples that were uh, sort of... It, it, that are implied in the passage, for example, you know, not eating with you know those who um, are not are not Jewish, as as he was doing. I think that's the sort of implied concern behind Antioch not that he was eating different things. So I don't think that Peter, for example, uh, changed his diet. I think he maintained a Jewish posture. And I would say even on the basis of Acts, you know, he receives that vision of these, you know, wild creatures, and he's told to, you know, rise, kill and eat. I think the locution of rise, kill and eat, and the illocution are different, right? So the illocution is what was sort of enacted by this vision. I think that it's very clear in Acts, in my opinion, because Peter is reflecting on what do these words mean? And like the text says this a couple of times. And it's interesting because you would think it's a pretty clear um, vision uh, if if we're just on the locutionary level of rise, kill, and eat. We would think. Okay, change your diet. But that's not what the vision is about. And Peter is clearly reflecting on what does his vision ultimately mean. And that's when Cornelius shows up. And Peter realizes that what the vision is ultimately about is the acceptance of the people who eat these things, right? It's the the acceptance of Gentiles who are are regarded as unclean. And so I don't believe that Peter changed his diet. And so I would say that even in Acts 2, he's probably eating, you know, uh, whatever would would have fit his scruples but it's the community dynamic it's who he's eating with that is creating the tension and the friction and and is ultimately what peter is retreating from that, you know there are some other understandings there of what's going on in 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 galatians 2 the main point that i would say kind of regardless of sort of like what's the implied scruple that he's not adhering to i would say that if we just take a kind of big picture new testament perspective it seems to me that peter reflects a kind of case study snapshot of somebody who is progressively getting it along the way
1: yeah and i think that's one of the areas that we can that is is quite helpful for us when we're thinking about our current race debates and and black lives matter and all lives matter is that there's there's so so many different aspects going on but one of them is that a lot of these affirmations occur not in not solo not alone uh, but they occur in the context of so- societies and and a social interaction so someone doesn't suddenly affirm or, or seek to affirm all lives matter uh, or a universalistic perspective in a vacuum uh, but they or, or for that matter black lives matter in a, vac- in a vacuum but they do so in, in a context of social interaction and social group dynamics. And so one of the areas where I think we can see this progression for Peter as helpful is in trying to diffuse a lot of these tensions within our, within our churches, within our society, and help people to see that actually a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the counter-affirmations, I guess you'd say, uh, of different universalistic approaches occur because they want to uphold the status quo they want to uphold Mm. the uh social group dynamic which which has brought about this situation so for peter james's people come and it's only when james's people come that he suddenly feels a need to uphold the status quo of Mm -hmm. a halakhic judaism which demands that he not eat gentiles and that's why i think for, for many of us in our modern context where we don't have the same form of Two gentile diversity, perhaps. If we've got any listeners in New York or down in the south here, south here in Melbourne, well, they might disagree. But we don't get that same form of ethnic, or those specific form of ethnic diversity that we see in Galatians and in the New Testament. But we have many other forms which we fairly, we fairly blithely ignore um, mm. a lot of the time. And it take it. And I think the church overall wants to take a universalist approach to these sort of debates.
0: Right. I mean, that's the thing is particularities are, you know, particular. So it requires a lot of, you know, application in various contexts for us to think about, you know, patterns of Gentile relations, for example, in the New Testament, and to begin to apply those to a lot of distinct, particular uh, issues of different cultures, sort of b- bumping into each other or, or trying to do life together in ways that, that, you know, needs to be navigated with some deafness.
1: And I think this is where just even reading some of the the accounts of transracial adoptees, uh, transcultural adoptees, can actually help us. As I'm going to say us here, because I, I I identify as part of the the majority at this case, help us to to step outside of our own context and see what see what's happening and what it, what it feels like outside. Because a lot of the time and the the, ter- the term is commonly used of whitewashing, making everything feel like it 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 is of a certain ethnic Id- identity. And from some friends I know, this isn't just whitewashing. Uh, it is it is essentially majority majority culture washing. So I have friends who are inter Asian. So one friend who is a so is more of an Indian background. So from the Tibetan, that they're not, they're not really sure what where they're from o- along the Tibet India. And Nepal border, but they're from uh, a minority ethnic group towards mm. west of China who was is, who is adopted by majority Han Chinese parents uh, in a Western context, so the parents were in Australia and they, they they found that it wasn't just it's not just whitewashing but it is a form of accommodation to the majority culture. in this case, mm. it was Chinese. In my case, it was uh, white Australian in in many other uh, friends' cases it's white American or white british and I think that's a, a very similar thing to what happens when we then look at the New Testament and you have this attempt at, um, of whitewashing or, yeah, I, I guess co- trying to get Gentiles to conform to the majority culture of the church, in, mm-hmm. which in that day was predominantly Jewish, um, right. Jewish Messiah followers. And I, I, I'm reminded of uh, some work that... Um, Joel Kaminsky is doing, and I'm indebted to my doctoral secondary doctoral supervisor here, Brian Tucker, um, who. But uh, Brian points to Joel Kaminsky, who writes of Israel. In, in fact, uh, that in Israel's prophets we see a move towards universalism through an effort de particularism, uh, mm-hmm. where there is this move towards uh, the universal uh, application of grace, universal application of people of God, uh, through through this deepening particularism of who Israel is and who uh, certain ethnic groups are and I, I think that's one of the areas that we really struggle with in the in, both in the church uh, and in, in a broader debate about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter is that even though we have a lot of the, the language and we have a lot of the um, theology behind behind being able to, to wrestle and engage with this we still don't do it very well. Just perhaps uh, just the story of the church in general right right uh, but perhaps going back full circle uh, perhaps this is one of the areas where being where listening to to transcultural and transracial voices uh, can actually help can help to bring out some of that dissonance that comes out with the universalism particularism debate of r1 corinthians of galatians and also of um black lives matter and all lives matter
0: that's great yeah i think this has been a really helpful conversation and thinking about this perhaps from a different angle than you know many of us have have done previously so it's been wonderful to chat about this and uh, get some of your thoughts on that
1: pleasure it's good to have a chat john
0: like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.